Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. I'm one of those people who gets up on a weekday morning and I'm thrilled to go to work. I love working at Dallas Theological Seminary on the Houston campus. It's just my privilege to be there. When I go to places like this, I like to tell one of my favorite stories, and that's when a couple of our millennial young staffers grabbed our then president, Mark Bailey, on one of the walkways on the campus of Dallas and said, hey, Dr. Bailey, we've got a great new idea. So he smiled and listened. He says, well, what's up? And they said, well, since 1924, when God founded our seminary, he's given us the privilege to bring the Bible training to anybody around the world. And Dr. Bailey smiled and nodded his head. And then they said, we think it's time that maybe we could offer classes online. And Dr. Bailey smiled. He says, do you think people would really be interested in that? And they said, oh, no, no, not for credit or anything, but for free. Just offer it for free. They wouldn't get credit. We wouldn't charge them any money. We would just teach the Bible for free. And Dr. Bailey kind of laughed and he said, you really think people would be interested in doing that? How many people would? And they said, oh, we think maybe 100 or 200 students would jump in on something privileged like that. And then he bashed his friend in the ribs and he says, yeah, over here, this guy thinks we might get as many as 500. So Dr. Bailey smiled and says, well, sounds like a really interesting idea worth pursuing. Go ahead and make it happen. And then these two guys looked at President Bailey and says, oh yeah, one more thing. We think you should do the teaching. Now, most programs are very successful when you can volunteer somebody else to do all the work. Well, it was kind of fun watching these guys put it all together and Dr. Bailey worked hard to, to put all these lessons online and tape them all in advance. And, before the class actually started, just when they were marketing it, it exceeded 500 students already. So everyone was excited. And in the process of that class, it was so well received that they decided to repeat it and then add another class. And before you knew it, there were over a thousand students taking these free online classes from DTS. And before you knew it, there were 5,000 students. And before they long, it was 10,000 students and when it surpassed 50,000 students, people were saying, wow, free really makes a lot of sense. People out there are very interested in studying the Bible. And I said, it wasn't because it's just the Bible. It wasn't just because it was free. The way you guys design the classes, the students can grade their own papers and exams. They're all getting A's. That's why it's so popular. Now, if you're interested in studying the Bible even further than what you're getting here, and I know you love to study God's word, but maybe you just want more. It doesn't cost you anything, and it's something that you could do at your own pace. Just go online at www.dts.edu and look for the free online classes. And if you join with that group of people, there are now over 300,000 people who have taken these free courses from BTS, and we would love it if you would be part of that wonderful collection of people studying God's Word. Well, I understand you've been studying the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit, and so it's my privilege to open up the Word of God as we understand how we can climax that with this particular passage that I've been asked to open up for you today. And in order to do that, I wanna tell you the story about two brothers, one was bright, and one was not so bright, and they had an adventuresome friend who came and told the two brothers, hey, you guys, I heard that there's a magic bridge out there in the woods, 
And I think if we go out this Saturday and look real hard, we might be able to find it. And they said, well, what's so special about the magic bridge? And he said, you can get on that bridge and if you make a wish, it'll come true. So all three of the boys got so excited that on Saturday they ran out there into the woods and searched for hours and hours and hours, could never find the bridge and they were exhausted and tired, thought about turning around and going home when all of a sudden their adventuresome brother said, stop. The adventuresome friend said, stop. I think I hear something. Quieting down, they all heard the rushing sounds of water. They got so excited, they jumped up from their resting place and they made a beeline for the sound. As soon as they broke out of the woods, there in front of them was a magic bridge that spanned a ravine with a rushing river running down underneath it. And they got so excited, they looked at each other and ran to the middle of the bridge. And their adventuresome friend says, watch this. I'm gonna make my wish and see if it comes true. So we climbed up on the handrail, thought for a moment, then jumped off the bridge. At the apex of his leap, he shouted out, eagle, and puff, he turned into an eagle and flew off into the ravine. His uh, bright brother was over there and he was so excited, paying attention to everything their adventuresome brother, a friend was doing. He climbed up on the rail and he thought for a moment and then he jumped off. At the apex of his leap, he shouted, salmon, and he turned into a salmon, puff, and he dove into the river and swam with all his fish friends. The not-so-bright brother, he got so excited and enthused with the passion of his brother and the passion of his friend, he climbed up on the rail and jumped off the bridge too. Just at the apex of his leap, he suddenly realized he was so excited to do this jumping thing, he forgot to think about what he wanted to wish for. So out of his frustration, he said the only thing that came to his mind, oh, horse poop, poof. <laughs> Now there's something really hilarious about that story that I've not forgotten about, and that is I'm the kind of guy, when passion sort of tempts me to get excited about something, I'm the doubter, I'm the skeptic, I'm the one who says, oh, I'm not gonna jump into that mess. Too many times as a young man, I remember getting excited about this or that, and having people laugh at me, have something fail that I've tried. To try passion, for anything became a sour choice for me. So I became the guy who was on the peripheral, the guy that looked at other people, looked at youth and thought to myself, yeah, I'm not gonna do that anymore. And so many times that we as human beings, we get laughed at, we fail enough, we get people who mock us, that when it comes time for passion, we hold back, we shrink back. We sound like we're not really that interested. Skepticism verbalized seems to be our fallback position. Well, there are times in the scripture when God just wants us to get excited about the things that he wants us to do. And if we are so set on having hesitation being our normal reaction when God wants us to be enthused about something, passion sometimes will leave us behind. God wants us many times when he gets us excited about things he's doing, he wants us to be passionate, but don't forget the focus because passion without focus can get us into trouble just like the magic bridge.
But when that focus is directly linked to the passion, then sometimes things go really, really well. I'd like you to keep that idea in mind as we go into God's word today in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, as we examine how God wants us to remember the passion that started the church, but the focus on Jesus Christ that was directly linked to that great passion. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And this is what the scripture has to say. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. As Luke wrote this particular historical account, he was identifying the apostles that Jesus Christ had given instructions to after he was resurrected from the dead. In chapter 1, we have that instruction when he actually told the apostles, after giving them many, many convincing proofs that he was now the resurrected Jesus Christ, he tells them, now don't leave Jerusalem yet. Stay here and wait until my Father gives you a wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he tells them to wait, and this is the response of the apostles as they waited for this instruction. And they were all together in a town that was not their own home because out of obedience, they are waiting for what Jesus Christ told them to anticipate. In this next verse that we have here, the scripture says, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now I know you're here in Indiana and I'm from Houston, Texas. So when I read a passage of scripture like this, I'm thinking hurricane. And Hurricane Laura just passed by through Texas and skipped us, thankfully. And I remember writing an email to Greg and saying, Greg, uh, pray for Houston and pray for me, because if Laura decides to veer west, we might be in big trouble trying to get out of Houston and get to Indiana in time for this weekend. But we Houstonians are used to hurricanes. I've been through just one hurricane since the time I've lived in Texas, and it was Hurricane Harvey. And when Hurricane Harvey came, he came over the little area called Katy, where I live, with my wife, Yvonne, and it decided to come over Katy and go back into the Gulf and get more power and come back over Katy again, go back into the Gulf and then come back over Katy and sit there on us until we had over 50 inches of rain. Now, when we lived through that hurricane, I remember the sound, the sound of the wind blowing. I remember the sound of the rains coming down on our house, beating our roof like we were inside of a drum. I remember the sound of the wind going through all the trees and branches snapping, branches brushing up against the window and smacking the side of the house. The sound of a violent wind is incredibly terrifying. But I also notice as someone who's experienced what it's like to live through a hurricane, that the language of scripture here is fascinating because all we have is the sound of a violent wind. Nothing was moving. There was no shaking, there was no rain, and there was no flooding. Just the sound of a violent wind. Now you can be terrorized because of the sound, but something doesn't seem right because it's not like a full-blown hurricane. You just hear the wind. Then the scripture says to us here, not only did they just hear, but they saw something too. 
they saw what seemed to be like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, there were over a hundred people who were all gathered together as followers of Jesus Christ, along with the 12 apostles. They had now uh, taken up the opportunity to replace Judas, who had turned in Jesus Christ for money, and they found this other fellow, Matthias, and they filled him in so that they could be at full strength to be a witness for Jesus Christ. That was their objective. But before they went off and did that, God had a plan for them to have this incredible power so that they could then represent Jesus Christ, not just with information, but represent Jesus Christ with incredible power, changing their lives so that they could be a part of their lives being changed as well. So when they saw this amazing sight of like fire that came into the room where they were and the fire separated, very likely the flames that went over the individuals probably was just the apostles. Could have been all the hundred and some odd people who were there. It's, it's difficult for us to say. But God designed what he wanted to do so that something very special would occur. After what they heard and what they saw, this next verse tells us something special. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now I know that there are many Christians who see this passage of Scripture and they get nervous speaking in tongues. Oh, that's scary, crazy stuff. It's bizarre behavior and this ecstatic speech and utterances that people have. Well, before you get into all the things that people claim are an evidence of what's happening here in Acts 2, just concentrate on the scripture. It's not nearly so scary. God doesn't talk about utterances and strange noises that come from human beings. Not here in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, he's speaking instead about languages. They begin to speak in languages that were known languages, known by other people that before that day, they themselves, the apostles, could not speak. They are not trained in the languages that are listed later on in this passage of Scripture. From all over the known world, Jews came to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the festival of Pentecost, 50 days after the first day of the festival of first fruits, which this year happened to correspond itself with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So 50 days after Christ was resurrected, all these Jews from all over the known world who spoke languages from their parts of the world where they came from treasured those languages. They all met in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And as they got together, they suddenly heard this crazy loud sound. And it wasn't so much the loudness of the sound, but the uniqueness of the sound. They started to hear their own language spoken by these apostles who did not know any languages different than their own language from Galilee just a few moments ago. Now, one of the most amazing things that the scripture suggests to us here is found in this next verse, when we look at what is going on. Now, there we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And as he's speaking about these other nations, that's why the emphasis is on known languages, not ecstatic utterances. In verse 6, it goes on and emphasizes that when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And you know how special that is when the language that you communicate from and the heart language that you have, 
the language that you dream in, when you are stuck in a community where no one speaks that language and suddenly someone calls out in the language that you know and understand, you have a natural gravitation toward that person so that you can communicate. So this was the reaction and one that we need to pay attention to in this verse. Utterly amazed, they ask, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? The Galileans were simple people from a very simple community. A lot of them were fishermen, a lot of them were farmers, a lot of them didn't have much, certainly not a high level of education. So they were peculiar in this particular miracle that they could speak foreign languages that other people could understand. I lived in Scotland with my family for two years and the Scots, after they got to know us, they decided to tease us and sometimes they would say, hey Bruce, what do you call a person who speaks three languages? And I thought, well, I think you call them trilingual. They said, correct. And what do you call a person who speaks two languages? They said, uh, you call them bilingual. He said, right. And what do you call a person who speaks one language? And I thought for a moment, I think you call them monolingual. And they laughed and said, no, you call them an American. <laughs> now that's the same thing happening here. Could all these Galileans be able to speak these foreign languages without any kind of education and speak it so perfectly that all of us who have traveled and have come here to Jerusalem can hear them just as if they had learned that language since a child? It's not just the fact that we can hear and understand them, but we can hear that they are speaking about the glory of Almighty God. And here in this next verse of scripture in verse nine, it gives us some idea of some of the languages that were spoken. In some more of the languages here in verse 10, this was not just an idea, but this was actually languages that they spoke so powerfully. And then here in verse 11, we see the same idea that the Cretans and the Arabs, we hear them declaring, notice here, the wonders of God in our own tongues. The miracle of tongues in Acts chapter 2 wasn't just to wow people, wasn't just to impress them. It was very much so that people could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ presented to them so they could hear it in their own language. And their reaction was very special as we see here in this last verse of this first section of the great event that occurred. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And that was a point of this passionate expression of an intervention by God to give his people something to pay attention to. You ever notice that? When there's a spectacular, sensational event, it captures our attention and we forget what we're doing. We list things that we wanna do in a day and we just set them all aside because our attention is riveted to a spectacular, sensational event. Little Jesse is only eight years old down in Pensacola, Florida, playing in the Gulf of Mexico in very shallow water. When he screamed and fell into the water and all the kids who were playing around him screamed and tried to get out of the water, his uncle looked up at the sound of his nephew screaming and he dove into the, the salty water and swam as hard as he could and he grabbed his nephew who had been 
attacked by a shark and the shark had bitten off his arm and he carried his bleeding nephew out of the water and put him in the care of a park ranger who had run over along with all of the people in the crowd. And the most amazing thing was the uncle, after he dropped his nephew off, he turned around and jumped back into the water. People were looking at his poor nephew. The ranger was giving him all the first aid he could and trying to keep him from going into shock. And some people turned around to look at the uncle. The uncle had dived back into the water. When he got into the water, he found the shark that hurt his nephew. And he grabbed the shark. And he wrestled with the shark until the shark was so tired he was able to wrestle the shark back onto the beach. And the ranger who was helping his nephew knew exactly what the uncle was doing. He ran over there and pulled out his service revolver and shot the shark three times in the head. He grabbed his baton and pried open the shark's mouth. When suddenly one of the volunteer firemen knew exactly what the ranger was doing, why the uncle went in there to get the shark, and he reached into the mouth of the shark and grabbed the nephew's arm, pulled it out of the shark. They wrapped the arm in a towel and they packed it in ice and sent it off to the hospital where the son had already been emergency transported through an ambulance. And because of that heroic action by that uncle to save not only the nephew but also the arm, the doctors were able to reattach that young boy's arm successfully. I don't know about you, but that spectacular event captures my attention. Captures it so rivetingly that I sure would love to know who that man was. Because I have nieces and nephews, and I'm not so sure I would be so heroic. But I do know this, that that story captured my attention. Does this story capture yours? In Scripture, these apostles suddenly, amazingly, being able to speak foreign languages so they can tell others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we have Peter now entering into the scene. He's going to give an explanation of this great event that we have just been describing. And this explanation that Peter gives is very powerful. And as we get understanding of what this event is all about, the scriptures unfold itself and tell us here, beginning at verse 22, what the scripture has to say. Peter says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Christ didn't perform miracles like a magician on the beach, just trying to get attention, just trying to entertain. That was not the point that Jesus Christ gave and performed all these great interventions. He did this in order to capture their attention so that they could have the veracity of his claim to be the son of God would be believed by all of them. In this next verse of scripture, the Bible tells us, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, sometimes we look at the death of Jesus Christ, and we sometimes shake our head and say, what a, what a sad conclusion. What a pitiful ending to the life of someone who was so precious to the entire world. Who in the world would have the audacity to do such a thing? And we blame the Jews, we blame the Gentiles, we blame them both together. But God takes our mind and our eyes off of who to blame for that horrendous act. 
It says, don't forget, the death of Jesus Christ was part of my plan so that all of you could have your sins paid for. That was my purpose. That was my intent. That was my desire. That was my plan. He died so that all of us could live. So when the scripture tells us that, he tells us that with a strong emphasis. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God allowed his son, planned for his son to die so that death could be defeated so that all of us can have life eternal if we put our faith in him. One of the most amazing things that happens in the scripture as it's unfolding for us here is how the reaction of the people occurs here in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. God's plan was in this great climax of Jesus Christ being resurrected from the dead and to give us that potential for new life. And the next verse of scripture is very powerful. When the people heard this, notice how they reacted. Their attention was captured by the miracle of tongues. Because of the miracle of tongues, they heard in their own native language the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that very powerful truth. And that caused them to have a conviction of heart. They were cut to the heart. That phrase is one of the most powerful ones that always grips me whenever I read this passage in Acts chapter two. For cutting to the heart is like someone pounding you on your chest with a pointed object that actually pierces your skin and causes your heart to tremble. It stops you from any locomotion of going to wherever you wanna go because suddenly you're gripped not just on the outside, not just with your emotion physically stopped, but inside in your heart, you feel deep conviction. Do you remember the last time that happened in your life? Cutting to the heart, the conviction by Almighty God so that the Holy Spirit can capture our attention. So we're not just skeptics. We're not just doubters. We're not just people who scoff at the possibility that God is trying to say something through us. It's not just that God is trying to move us so that we would be an individual instead who responds first to what God wants, not what we want. Doesn't happen very often in our lives, and one of the times I remember it happened to me very, very vividly. I had been invited by a group of men out into a rural part of a state and they wanted me to speak to their men and I was glad to do it and I drove out, drove and drove and drove for hours and hours and really thought maybe this was a joke because all I saw was barren land but the further I went, suddenly a valley came into view right there in the middle of that flatness and I drove down into the valley and found a retreat center where the guys were meeting. I got out of the car and it was the light to meet these guys, the ones that I'd been communicating with and we laughed and we enjoyed each other's fellowship. I got on the platform, began to teach the word for several times during that retreat. And I loved how responsive and how attentive all of these individuals were. And from the left, I scanned all the way to the right and I noticed, man, these guys are all white. I knew they were all white because they all looked alike. 
And as I started to scan through the crowd, I, I noticed over here on the right on the front row, there was a huge guy. I mean, he wasn't just huge. He was just huge and big. And he was a head and shoulder taller than anybody else. He was twice as big as maybe the chair he should have been in. And, but he was not receptive or responsive. Instead, he sat there with his arms folded. And his biceps were as big as most men's thighs. He had a huge beard that covered half his chest, and his hair was really furry and curled everything. I, I could hardly even see his eyes. I couldn't tell if he was mad at me or really delighted. It was just so hidden. But because his arms were crossed and he just stared at me, I just thought, man, oh man, I feel some energy coming from here that I'm not so thrilled about. So I just smiled as I talked with the crowd, and when I got over to here, just kind of my head went up and around and over, over here, over and up and around and over again. And I just had a ball speaking to the rest of the guys, and he's the one guy I tried to avoid. My last message, I remember stepping down from the stage, looking over at some guys and waving at them and thanking them for having me, and suddenly it was like a, an eclipse. The sun just started to disappear. Big shadow engulfed me, and I thought, oh, Jesus, here I come. And I looked over here, and I looked up at the guy, and I said, hey, I hope this was a helpful conversation on forgiveness. He says, I don't think God can forgive me. He says, why would you say that? He says, I was in Vietnam for three tours of duty. The United States government taught me how to kill people. And I was really good at it, so I kept going back. On my last tour, our, our unit was out on a search and destroy mission when we were ambushed and mortar fire was going all over the place. Everything was exploding. Some of my friends exploded in midair and were totally vaporized. And it scattered our entire unit and I knew that we had a rendezvous point that we always do whenever we go out on patrol. And so I showed up at the rendezvous point and I was the first one there. It was right next to a path that went between rice paddies right at the edge of the forest that led to a village off in the distance. And I remember when I was waiting for my buddies, I hoped they would show up, uh, an Asian guy, a Vietnamese guy came riding out of that village on a bicycle, an old, old guy. And when he saw me, he started cussing at me. I, I don't know much Vietnamese, but I knew the words he was using and they were not good. And he just screamed and hollered as he cussed at me all the way up to where I was. And when he got close enough, he spit on me. And he kept riding past and he was still screaming. I thought, who, who do you think you are? Cussing me out. I come across thousands of miles to come to your country to try to fight for your freedom. Watch my guys get blown away in the smithereens and you have the audacity to cuss me out? He says, I don't know how it happened. It's what I was trained to do. And that rifle went right up to my shoulder. Clicked off the safety and was ready on automatic. Put the sights on the back of that guy. And I pulled the trigger until all the ammunition in the magazine was gone. No, I don't think God can forgive me of that. And I remember thinking for just a couple of seconds, Hold on now, you don't want to go to Jesus because you blew away an Asian guy. And now in this whole group when there's only one Asian guy here, you're coming to me to ask me to give you the pathway and the key to forgiveness? 
And I remember thinking, maybe I shouldn't do this and just let him wallow in all of his regret and guilt. And I remember, cut to the heart. It's like God was saying, okay, Bruce, what are you going to tell him? Are you going to tell him what you want to tell him? Are you going to tell him what I want to tell him through you? And that being cut to the heart, realizing my own vulnerability to my own biases, that I want to set that aside and say, Almighty God, you love this man and Jesus died for him. May he know that truth too. I just told the guy, yes, even you, no matter what you have done, Jesus died for you and God wants you to be forgiven in Jesus' name. All of a sudden, the sky went dark. I could hardly breathe. There was rain pouring down on my head. And I suddenly realized this guy had grabbed me and was hugging me and was sobbing on top of my head and I, I couldn't get out of there. And when I was about ready to have my last breath, suddenly he released me and I stood there breathing deeply, panting. And a bunch of the guys came running up and grabbing him. And one of the directors of the retreat told me, we'll take it from here, Bruce. This is what we've been praying for. What a remarkable moment. But God did not let me get in the way of telling somebody else the good news that somebody else has told me so long ago. Do you realize Acts 2 is saying God has done some amazing miracles in a fellowship like this? And he wants you to be free to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ because of the friendship that you have with them. Tell them. Tell them, not because you're, you have all the answers that anyone else might have of their doubts, but just tell them what God has done for you. Tell them about the sensational miracle of your transformation with an enthusiasm, with a passion of a spectacular event long ago that's been a blessing for us all. And watch, just watch what God might do to turn somebody else's life around. Bring them into eternity because you did exactly what Acts 2 is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the tremendous privilege of your word. Thank you for the people who are here today who have taken the chance to be here in this fellowship. We thank you for Acts 2 and the incredible story and the very clear instruction that you've given to us about what this all means. Will you seal that in the hearts of as many people here who are open to your spirit moving in their lives? And Lord, when they get a chance to share that enthusiasm with somebody else, may they experience and watch a tremendous miracle take place before their very eyes. We commit this all to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.